Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast. Recently, I've spoken to a number of artists that I intend to interview on our Tuesday night show, The Large Glass. We interview people live in their studio from time to time, and I've been both surprised and not surprised by how many people have shown nervousness or trepidation around the idea of being talked to about their work. And this is something that I can completely relate to and something that I've been meaning to talk about for a while. And it actually goes to some of my subject matter in previous podcast episodes around this idea of meaning and our need to assign meaning to work, to artwork and where that comes from and why it, it becomes a problem. So I'm Todd Lambricks. This is Art Shorts. And let's get down to that. So what do we get so nervous about when it comes to, you know, as artists, what do we get nervous about when it comes to talking about our work? And, 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 and I think we can all answer that question pretty easily. It, it has to do with, it has to do with meaning. It has to do with intention. Intention is one that I have a really hard time with. Christina Rees from Glass Tire, which is a, um, online only arts magazine out of texas a really great publication by the way I, I highly recommend going and looking at that i've just discovered it recently myself i found an article of hers called should artists have to talk about their own work and she starts off with a little narrative about you know being at a artist talk and having the artist on stage marching back and forth very sort of corporate in their presentation of the work touching on every possible keyword and catchword you could want to have from an artist if you were a museum curator or you know intellectual and this kind of sort of forceful organized well-rehearsed talk about every element that was present in the work became this kind of real flattening of the experience especially for the artists in the audience and why is that why is it that the curators and the academics that are sort of participating in this exchange eat this stuff up as if it is the end-all be-all to the art experience and the artists themselves actually grow suspicious of it and so I have, you know, my own stories that I could tell about this, of course, but I, I want to get into a few that are uh, external, and then I'll touch on one of my own for this. So I think we as artists are approached on a regular basis to help people understand what it is that we do. And it's gotten confused. It's gotten muddied. The waters have really clouded over the years probably since modernism began and people started to understand work less and less, we, we have had this sort of responsibility thrown on us to define what we do. What does it mean? What does your work mean? I find this to be the single largest um, irritation that comes to me um, around my work. I remember once 
you know, when I was at RISD and I was hanging out at a Brown University bar and there was this philosophy PhD there who had an over-exuberance for what I was doing, kept saying to me, I want to talk to you about your aesthetic, your aesthetic. I want to talk about your aesthetic. And I thought, I, I'm, I'm not even quite sure what you're asking about here. My, my aesthetic as if my aesthetic, meaning the, the visual presentation and organization of materials and, and visuals that I put forth for you to sort of look at is some kind of formula that I've created. It's some kind of magical recipe that I have in a book somewhere that I can cite to you and you can walk away with research notes. No, no, that's not how that works at all. I think we make this work out of a need to communicate in a way that does not involve the very words that everyone seems to be looking for. I think genuine work I think genuine art-making practice comes from a place that defies that language. Visual presentation of anything is just that. It's visual. The steps it takes to get to meaning through words are so layered. Let's think about this for a minute. Words are comprised of letters. Letters are glyphs, they're symbols, they're images, they're small representational images or glyphs that have an assigned meaning to them. So if I take the word comment, I know that if I see C-O-M-M-E-N-T as a series of letters strung together into a word, I know that that word then has a sort of, uh, a sort of concept around it, not a definition, a concept that basically centers on this notion of, well, I've said something, I've commented on something, meaning I've said, I've, I've stated an opinion or a fact about a particular thing. Comment. Fine. I'm not necessarily interested in the definition of the word, more the concept of the word. What does the word do? And how does our brain associate the connection between the stringing together of seven letters into a word, into a concept, into an understanding. This series of steps, while instantaneous in our brains, is actually far more layered and objective and computational than the layers that might be associated with looking at an image. When we look at an image, we are first presented with visual material. Our brains respond to compositional elements, spatiality, formal nature, uh, uh, presence. If it's a sculpture, you know, and our, our relationship to our body, there are so many things that we respond to on a much more physical or intuitive or emotional level. It is not as calculated. It is not as objectified as the reading of words. They are from two distinctly different worlds. So to me, this oil and water combination has been forced upon us as artists by the world of academia. Academia being one of the only worlds that still supports the arts in the way that we need it to. We certainly don't support them on a social level. Our culture sort of doesn't necessarily reject art on a social level, but just isn't interested in art on a social level. It is not something that we can acquire easily. It is not something we can um, buy and, well, we can, but we've lost interest in that. 
Part of that probably has to do with the way in which it connects to us. Academia has sort of taken over the connection people can have or are willing to have to a work of art. They've polluted that water. Academia has polluted that water in such a way that we now feel it necessary to dissect, to intellectually dissect everything we see if we are still in that world of art making, which is sort of held up, propped up by academia. Now we have to make the work academic. We have to be able to talk about what our intention was. We have to be able to define every single element in the piece. Nothing is arbitrary. This is a statement I've actually used as an art professor in a university. And I can talk about these things firsthand because I have been part of that systemization of intellectualizing the work. We can't allow it to be what it really is in the end, a, you know, a simple image, something that is meant to be experienced in a sort of visual way. We see evidence of this in the museum or in the gallery when we walk in and we're greeted by a wall of text. I've talked about this before. You've heard me complain about this before, where our experience, our visual experience with a work of art has to first be sort of padded by a lot of reading or listening to an audio guide, putting on a set of headphones as you move about the museum so that your experience with each of these works is sort of controlled and you feel good about it. And the reason you feel good about it is because this somehow relates to education. A museum will tell you its goal is education. And that's why you have those wall texts. That's why you have those audio guides to better educate the viewer about what it is they're looking at. Now, don't get me wrong. Audio guides and audio tours and docents, people that talk about the work, they do a beautiful job of that. And they do help to contextualize what it is we're looking at. These are things that come from history. And I'm not saying that all of this should be eradicated. But what it has done is it has supplanted the visual experience as something that can stand alone. We're nervous about that. We're nervous about approaching a piece of artwork without first knowing what it means. And so when I go forward to talk to somebody in an interview on a show about their work, what I'm really interested in doing, because, you know, on some level by interviewing them, and I'm putting little air quotes around that as I say it, by interviewing them, it's implied that I'm looking for that very thing. It's implied that I'm looking to add meaning to what it is we're seeing. But that's the catch. And this is the part that I have trouble explaining to people that are going to come onto a show and talk about their work. I'm more interested in talking to them about their practice. What it's like to be in the studio, surrounded by your materials, surrounded by your influences, your space, and connect on a deeper level to the experience of making. What it's like to have that moment of discovery when two things go together, whether it's two colors, whether it's two marks, whether it's two pieces of physical material, whether it's the, the, the spark of ingenuity when we realize we want to create a performance. And, and how those things come into being, there's a mystery in that for me. And I'm, and I'm curious about that end of it. One of the artists that we're going to be talking about on this show, they're a couple and they create together, collaboratively, they create these fantastic figurines. 
And by figurines, I don't mean tchotchkes. I don't mean the type of figurine that maybe we sort of think of when we think of, you know, the the Hummel figures that our grandmothers might have had. Um, Their work is really quite unique. They're these idols, these talisman-like objects, and they, they, their uniqueness is in the fact that I don't have an interest in intellectualizing or assigning meaning to or coming up with some kind of you know, bullet point list of everything they symbolize. There's a wonderment in these, which I've talked about before. There's a uniformity in the set or collection of these things. And, and there's this kind of, um, you know, there's a word that I use sometimes and people sort of, you know, their eyebrows go up and their eyes get wide. And it's the word fetishism, because we always sort of automatically assume that fetish implies some kind of sexual nature. But the reality is, is that, you know, one of the actual definitions of fetishism is about perceiving power in objects or things. And, and, and these figures, these idols, these, these uh, small sculptures, th- when together as a group, even individually, but more so when together as a group, they possess this kind of perceived power. Now, where does that come from? What is that about? I'm not necessarily sure. And part of my interest in having these things, in collecting these things, comes from that place, that perceived power, the unification of a body of work that has similarity, but also has difference, has individuality, and also maintains a uniformity how a power begins to build around that thing, that visual aesthetic that comes together and presents itself as a unified whole. Now, this happened a long time ago uh, in a project that I did um, as a student with, uh, and I have, you know, it's funny, I, I repeat myself in a lot of these episodes, I repeat stories because I feel like some of the stories that I've encountered along my way and the stories that I will tell have multiple layers right and so one person that i've talked about in the past her name is marcia tucker she was the founding director of the new museum for contemporary art i had an opportunity to take a class with her when i was in graduate school and in this class she would assign very conceptual projects very thought-provoking projects she was a brilliant mind she's missed dearly And in this class, she once told us that our assignment was for next week, we're going to meet on the corner of Broadway. And I think it was Broome in Manhattan. And don't forget, we were at RISD. So we were in Providence, Rhode Island. So for us to get to class on time, we had to drive to New York City. It's three and a half, four hours away. So she said, we'll meet on the corner of Broadway and Broome. And what I want you to do is wear khaki pants and a white button down shirt thought okay not exactly in the wardrobe of the average artist but okay khaki pants white button down shirt go that's our assignment for the week so we met there a group of 18 of us all wearing the same thing marcia tucker shows up she has the same exact outfit on and a group of 19 people led very obviously led by this leader this person that was you know older than us and clearly you know very sort of uh straight in her posture serious in her demeanor led us on a walking tour through the Soho region of New York City. And we would go into the lobby of certain buildings. We would walk through stores. We would all sit down simultaneously in a cafe. We were not allowed to talk. We were not allowed to converse with anyone on the street. We had to follow her every move. Weirdly choreographed, but also loose at the same time. She wanted us to look serious as well. 
So we did. Now, along the way, we observed dozens, if not hundreds of people who stopped and stared at us, stopped and looked at this parading group through the city streets, walking into a hotel lobby and all sitting down in the bar together, getting up, moving on, marching through another store. And it's the exact same thing about that uniformity that has a perceived power in it. People looked at us because they understood there was a connection to what was going on. There was a perceived power in what was going on, but it wasn't necessarily defined or understood. We were not like the police, a group of police officers all wearing police uniforms that have a uniformity that goes way beyond the individual, that goes towards a definitional kind of um, tack that says, this is authority right? Or like a military uniform or a football team uniform. Those uniforms, that kind of uniformity takes the uniform and the, the sort of um, connection that it gives to a team or a force and it supersedes the individual. It points towards that group, that agenda on a much higher level. For us, we happen to all be dressed the same and it was clear that we belonged together, but we did not possess that kind of higher level authority. And people gazed upon us in a kind of way that said, I know something's going on here. I don't know what it is, but it's gotten my attention. We were the piece of art. We did not have to have a wall text attached to us. We changed the way people perceived what they were looking at in a subtle, non-definitional way. It was almost like a knowledge that's inaccessible to the intellect, right? It, it, it was there, but it wasn't fully accessible. It was, it, was a kind of, um, it was a kind of mysticism in a weird kind of way. Marsha Tucker was brilliant at teaching us that, and that lesson has stuck with me, especially around this argument on the intellectualization of the art world, the, the, the need to always find and state the meaning in a work of art. So that is what I'm getting at today, is should artists need to talk about their work? Do, well, not should they need to, should they have to? And how does applying that idea, how does inserting, injecting, applying that idea to what it is that's been done flatten that piece somehow? It robs it of the visual experience on some level. It forces a layered approach through language that stops the more intuitive, the more innate visual experience that we have. And remember, before you ever knew language as a baby, before you ever knew how to read or write, before you ever knew that that collection of symbols on the page was a word and that word had a concept, you understood that the baby's bottle or that your mother's breast meant nourishment, meant that you were about to be fed. The concept of that visual thing said to you, I'm about to eat. And so there was a connection between the visual first, long before you learned language. Language is secondary. Does it possess a higher intellectual capability or, or can it be loaded with more intellectual material? Can it be the conduit through which research flows? Of course. But there is an innate, deeper level understanding that we have to imagery and that's where the art world lies. And to put this language on top of that is a huge mistake. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for today. I wanted to sort of just give a quick plug for the Patreon page that supports this podcast as well as the large glass that Terry and I produce on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Twitch. 
definitely go check that out. We've got some really great artist interviews on there. We present a new art-related theme or artist every week for you to sort of come along, participate in the chat, and hang out with us. So it's laid back. It's fun. Um, We hope you'll join us for that. And maybe if you could pitch us a few bucks on Patreon, you could also be a supporter of that. We have exclusive content on Patreon that we put out. We talk about our favorite artists. We've we've got some interesting things to throw to our monetary supporters um, as a thank you. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening today. Get out there and make something great. Enjoy yourself. Dig into your practice. And we'll see you next time. I'm Todd Lambricks, and this is Art Shorts. <laughs>